All right, so I totally love that song. I just think it's wonderful. You know, it's interesting, there are some songs that endure generation by generation by generation. Clearly, that's one of them. And I think maybe one of the reasons for that is that it's not just brilliantly composed. Clearly, it's that. But, but it strikes a fundamental accord in every one of our hearts. You know, we, we want to know that it is, it's well with our kids, and it's well with our marriage, and it's well with our health, and it's well with our business, and it's well with a lot of things. But, man, when it comes right down to it, okay, is it well with my soul? That's the thing you want to know most of all, isn't it? And that's so much of what we're going to talk about. You know, it occurred to me this week that, that when it comes to Jesus, one of the things that's always intrigued me, I guess, is, is that pretty much everybody who knows anything at all about the life of Jesus really likes Jesus. I mean, maybe there's an occasional person who doesn't, but for the most part, they like Jesus. Now, they might not like the church of Jesus, and I think that's fair and unfair, just to be frank. I mean, I think that we've done some things as the church with a capital C that have been pretty off-putting over the years. And I think we've been parodied a bit as well and misrepresented, and that is a little off-putting to me. But, but the reality is, I think that for most people who know anything at all about the life of Jesus, okay, well, they might not like the church, or maybe they do, but in either case, they like Christ, and He is likable if you think about His life. I mean, just look at it by a cursory examination for a second. Jesus, for example, lived a common life. He was a common man. Well, you know what? That's true for most of us, isn't it? I mean, or at least at some point in our life, if not now, we were pretty common. So we can relate to that. Jesus is a guy who had sorrow and suffering and profoundly so in his life. Listen, live a little bit and you'll be able to identify with that too. Jesus, however, had sorrow and suffering, at least if you believe the gospel, not because of what he did, but because of what we've done. In other words, he suffered sacrificially for the well-being, for the eternal life of other people. Jesus was loving and kind, and even when we fail to be loving and kind, we know that we ought to be loving and kind, and oh, incidentally, being loving and kind, very, very admirable. Jesus championed the cause of the poor and of the needy and the disadvantaged and the afflicted and the oppressed. Wow! Jesus not only that did that, but who did he befriend? Because it wasn't just the powerful people. There were clearly some of those in the camp of Jesus, but it seems at least like they were in the minority. Joseph of Arimathea, okay, he's in that group. Nicodemus, these guys who came to claim his body and embalm him and put him in the tomb, in that group. But for the most part, Jesus bears a scandalous reputation. Why? Because he hangs out with people that have scandalous reputations. The rejected, the outcast. You look at that life and you go, good grief, who doesn't like this guy, really? And then not only that, but when it came down to his suffering and death, he's arrested, he's falsely charged and tried and convicted of a crime that he clearly did not do. And it's all unjust and it's all unfair and it's all trumped up. He had every reason to be bitter and angry with the people who did all of these things to him. And then what does he do? He loves his enemy and he prays for those who persecute him. And then by his teaching and example, he teaches all of us to do exactly the same thing. He's a likable guy, Jesus. But as you get into his life on a more nitty-gritty basis, one of the things you realize is that liking Jesus is not enough. And not only that, it's not his goal. Now, his goal is not to alienate people. His goal is not to be unfriendly. His goal is not to not be liked by people. That's not it. And it's not as though he's unconcerned with that. It's just so clear when you begin to look at some of the statements that he makes that he's calling us to so much more than liking him. He's saying, in effect, listen, when it comes to me, Jesus, there are two doors, not three. Two options, not four, just two. 
So there's embrace me entirely, or there's reject me entirely. Like he doesn't leave us in the land of, "Ah, I think I just kind of want to like you casually. It's not there. And we know that because Jesus Christ, on seven different occasions in the Gospel of John, does what? Well, wait a minute. Who is Jesus? According to the Gospel of John. According to all of the other Gospel writers. Like, I mean, at least if you believe the New Testament, who is Jesus? He is, as I've said in the past, the invisible God made visible. The intangible God made tangible. The insensible God, and that God is out there somewhere, and He's not sensible to any of our physical senses come to us in the most sensible, comprehensive form that he could have possibly ever approached us in. And how is that? It's at one of us. Flesh, blood, human being, like me, like you. And yet unlike me and you. And that unique among all human beings, he is God who comes as a human being. Okay, so here's the deal. Seven times that Jesus, at least if you believe the Scriptures, gathers up all of us who will listen and He takes us back through the Old Testament and He takes us back into the book of Exodus and He takes us out into the Midianite desert. He takes us out to that place, that story with Moses where that same invisible God did what? Made Himself tangible, made Himself visible, made Himself sensible, different form. But as a fire in a bush that Moses could see, that he could hear, that he could feel the heat emanating from, etc. Get the point? And in that encounter... What does God say to Moses? He says, listen, among other things, I'm going to give to you my memorial name to all generations, including this generation that you and I occupy presently. And so then what is the name? Because it's a little bit weird. It's I am. Okay, so it's Mother's Day. We have lots of moms here today. We've got lots of kids here today. We're crawling with kids, which incidentally I love, by the way. Just know that. Here's what I know. And I don't even know this. Maybe I don't even know you. I know that when you were choosing names for your kids and you went on the internet and you began to scroll through all of the different lists of all of the different names, some of them you thought were awesome, some of them that you laughed out loud at, some of them you know that you thought were really, really odd. Here's one of the names that you did not see. I am. It doesn't make any sense at all until you consider who is the one who's claiming the name. Because there's an an effect. What he's saying is, look, if you want to know who the creator and sustainer of all things is, if you want to know who the beginning and the end of all things is, if you want to know who the determiner of all things is, who the all-loving one is, all-just, all-merciful, all-holy, all-present, all-knowing, all-wise, just keep going. That's when my name is going to make sense to you. So here's the name. It's I am, as in I am everything you were made for. And here's how I know that, because I made you for me. Jesus, that God, made visible, human body, planet earth, grabs us as his listeners if we'll go for the ride. He takes us out into the Midianite desert. He lays hold of that name. He attaches it to biblical image of life after biblical image of life seven times. And then he applies it to himself in such a way as to make it absolutely clear that just liking him, though he's not against that, clearly, is not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to so much more. And here's how I know that, because he attaches it to himself with the little word, the, as in I am the bread of life. Now, hang on a second. What is he saying with that? Well, here's what he's not saying. He's not denying that there are other breads in this world from which we seek to derive life. And we have that list, don't we? We know it. There's the bread of sex and the bread of money. It's all predictable. The bread of achievement, the bread of this, the bread of that, the bread of popularity, the bread of whatever. You know, the bread of marriage, the bread of kids, the bread of not being married, the bread of sending away your kids. I mean, there's all this stuff. 
And the story of every one of our lives in varying degrees is this story. Are you ready? It's the story of us running from one kind of bread to the next 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 kind of bread, all the while hoping that the next one we try will be the bread. And the story of so many of our lives then too is us filling ourselves up on this bread and going to bed full and thinking maybe this is it and waking up hungry and realizing in a crushing kind of way that it isn't. Well, Jesus is coming and he's saying, let me save you some time. I mean, I hope this doesn't sound egotistical, but I'm just not just like every other man. I'm a little bit different, like maybe even a lot. Okay, I'm going to go infinitely different. And yet I came to you in a form that you understand. I am the bread of life that you're looking for. And then what does he say? He says, whoever likes me because they find me admirable shall not hunger. Is that it? No, it's a lot more than that. Whoever comes to me in their brokenness, having exhausted themselves with all the other breads, having found everything else utterly and completely devoid of the ability to make them full, and in humility gives themselves to me such as they are, shall not hunger. And then he continues and he says, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Boom. It's more than like. He just keeps going. Jesus continues. He says, I'm the light of the world. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he's not a light and he's not one of the lights. Oh, wait a minute. No, it means that there are no other lights. No, wait a minute. So then what it means is that the entire world is in darkness and what Jesus is saying is except for me, Jesus. Oh, and by the way, there is a light, just one, and that would be me. So, you know, follow me on Facebook because I'd be flattered if you did that. It's not what he says. He says, so follow me. Because here, here's the reality, here's the truth. The truth is, I and I alone know where I'm going, and I and I alone know where you're going, and I and I alone know where everyone else is going, and I and I alone have the ability, the capacity to illuminate your life, your paths, your everything. Jesus says, I am the door. What does a door do? We know this. We experience it every time we walk through one. A door divides that which is on the outside from that which is on the inside. But every time in the Bible that you come to a door, what does it divide between? It divides between the judgment of Lord, sorry, and the deliverance and eternal life also granted by the Lord. What is Jesus saying with this image? He's coming to me and you and he's going, let me just tell you something that you already know, even if you deny this. There is a God and he's not you. And he made you, however, for himself... And you haven't lived that way. And so then there is judgment. But then there's deliverance. You're like, I'm not so sure that I know that. You know what, I think, I think that we all do know that. I think that, that when we come to the end of our life, for example, and all of our pride is stripped away, and all of our bravado is gone, and all of our strength has waned, and we get to the end of our life having denied the existence of God, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I have to believe that there's some kind of fear in here that says, what if I'm wrong? And if it's all good and you're wrong, why would there be any fear at all? I think intuitively we understand, yeah, there's a God, and yeah, I'm supposed to live for Him, and yeah, I think at least that I'd rather live for me. And oh, when it comes right down to it, maybe it isn't well with my soul, which is concerning because of all the many things we want to know that things are well with. That's a little bit of a biggie. 
And Jesus is saying, hey, um, I can help with that. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd, he said. We heard that last week here. So what does that imply? I mean, if we're just going to put it out there, what does it imply? He's not denying that there aren't any other shepherds out there. He's just saying there's only one good one, and that would be me. Think about that. What does a good shepherd do? Well, when you walk away, he goes after you. Leaves the 99. We read about all of these things. He goes out to find you. He goes and finds you out in the wilderness of the world in order to bring you back. He does all of these things in love. He cleans you up, does He not? He debugs you. He, he gets rid of all the thorns and things that are stuck in your fur. What else does He do? He binds up all of your wounds. What else does He do? Well, when you go away again and again and again and again and again and again, here's what these people in that first century culture understood because they knew sheep. The shepherd in love would break the leg of the sheep. Set the break and bind it. Put the sheep on his own shoulders, stinky as he may be, and carry him around until it healed sufficiently for the sheep to put weight on it again and walk behind him. The shepherd leads to green pastures. The shepherd leads beside quiet waters. The shepherd restores our soul. Jesus is going, listen, that's a pretty tough list for well, anybody except for me. So, you know, like my pictures on Instagram. No. No, 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 no. Realize you're a sheep and that I'm the good shepherd. And then behave accordingly. I'm the resurrection and the life. Well, why is that good news? Because all kinds of things die in our lives that you and I are powerless to revive and nothing else and no one else can do it either. But we long for life in it, relationships, all kinds of stuff. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the author of life. I have power over death. I bring things to life that nobody else can. I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, I'm the true vine. And what he's talking about is a grapevine. So what do grapes produce? They produce wine. What does wine produce? I know you're thinking drunkenness. Just hang on to that. That's not the right answer, okay? It can. But in the Bible, what is wine? It's a biblical emblem of joy. Okay, if we had a joy sign-up sheet today, I mean, like, who would not put their name on that? Guaranteed joy. Like, it'd be overflowing with everyone. Even if you didn't think God existed, you'd, you know, I'm going to take a flyer on this. We'll just put my name down on the joy list. What the heck? Because we all want it. It is well with my soul. Want to know that? I'm after joy. I'm into that. What do you have to do to know the joy of Christ? Carry the metaphor forward. I'm the vine, you are the branches, he says. If any man remain in me, now hang on, what, what would that require? It would require me, it would require you as a branch to cut myself off from all of the other vines that are not the true vine. It's pretty exclusive. But then again, he's God made man. So who else qualifies, really? Makes sense when you think about it like that. Now I have to cut myself off from all of these other vines that I'm trying to look to for life and that I'm hoping will produce fruitfulness through me. And I need to attach myself to Jesus and then remain there. Get the idea? Okay, so then what's the seventh? Because that's six. The seventh is the one that I hope that you've been working through in your personal worship this week. And it is for me the I am statement that more than any other I am statement that Jesus makes, makes it emphatically clear, at least today, at least in our culture, yeah, that, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure he wants us to like him and he lives a likable life. But man, is he calling us to more than that. He's calling us to, 
to all in. Jesus says this, John 14, 6. Here we go. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and in case that's confusing. He then continues and says, no one comes to the Father, that is to say, to the one whose name is I am, as in I am everything you were made for, and are looking for and longing for, except how? Except through me, except through faith in me and my life and sufferings and death and burial and resurrection. And man, I think that if you care at all about people, and I believe that you do, if you're in touch at all with your own weaknesses and ineptitudes and and so forth, and I, I believe that you are, then here's what happens when you hear that statement coming out of the mouth of the Jesus that frankly you really like and admire. You kind of freak out a little bit, don't you? Because immediately your heart goes rushing toward all of these people who adhere to other religions and all of these people who don't adhere to any religion. And and you want to argue against the statement of the Jesus that you like. It's sort of like, yeah, I just want to take this one exception here for a second. So, Tom, are you saying that this God who made how many different kinds of sea creatures? I mean, do we even know? How many different kinds of birds? How many different kinds of bugs? Good grief, how many just here in South Florida? They're everywhere. How many kinds of animals? How many kinds of plants? How many kinds of different kinds of topography all around the world? How many different kinds of climates? How many different kinds of sounds and noises and colors and music and people? And oh man, this is a God that's into diversity. So you're saying that Tom, this God who is so obviously into diversity and in addition to that, claims to love humanity and wants to be reconciled with it is made only one way to him. Is that what you're saying? No, but that is what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what the Lord is saying. And that makes it impossible to just like Jesus, because I think if the reality is, if there really is only one way to God and it's Him, then you've either got to embrace Him entirely or reject Him entirely, like there's not a third option. I think I'm just going to be casually associated with you from a distance and I'm going to like you. Calls you to more. It's remarkable. But it is probably the most offensive statement, at least today, that Jesus makes, don't you think? But why is it offensive? I mean, the answer to that seems obvious, but let's dissect it for a second. Why is it offensive? Because it isn't offensive. It cannot possibly be offensive. Because all of the different world's religions are actually equally valid in terms of ways to God. That cannot possibly be. Here's why it cannot possibly be. It sounds nice. It's pacifying. It doesn't work. And here's why. They're too different. They're irreconcilably different. So I'll give you some examples, okay? Islam, Judaism, Christianity teach that there is one God. Hinduism, 300 million gods. Confucianism, no God. Oops. Islam, Judaism, Christianity teach that God is a personal God. Buddhism denies the existence of a personal God. So what do we have? Many of the world's religions deny life after death. Probably most of the world's religions affirm life after death and affirm it with the blood of every single one of their many martyrs. So now what are we dealing with? I mean, is, is there a God or are there gods or is there no God? If there is a God or gods, is he a he or a she or is he an it or it and it? 
because it's more or less an impersonal force. If there's life after death, where is it and what is it like because there's no consensus on that or is there even life after death? This is not like going to the Honda dealership, man, and walking out into the car lot and looking at all of these different Honda Accords all with exactly the same features, just different colors. You've got blue, you've got orange, you've got garnet, you've got gold. It's an easy decision. Just know that in terms of colors. But seriously... It doesn't matter. It's all the same car. No, no, no. This is a Honda Accord or a light bulb. This is a Honda Accord or a feather. This is a Honda Accord or a worm, a stone, dirt, a leaf. Completely different. Very different. And different in terms of the way we measure ethics, too. Right and wrong. Not a lot of consensus there, either. And we know that by experience. And it's tragic that we know that. But it's become commonplace in our day to turn on the news and to listen to some story about some person that strapped bombs on themselves and blew themselves and all kinds of other people up. It's tragic that they did that to themselves. It's tragic that they did that to a whole bunch of other people. But know this, they did that thinking that in that act of supreme devotion, they were performing the ultimate act of good. Is that good? I think we'd have to agree that that is not good. But how do we know? How do we decide? And who decides? And that, I think, brings me to the ultimate difference, at least in my mind, between Christianity and every other world religion, and it is this. Put Christianity over here for a second. Every other world religion says that you have to make your way to the God or to the gods or to no God, so we still have that issue. That is either, assuming that a god or gods exist, personal or impersonal, a he, she, or an it, and then to the afterlife that may or may not exist, and well, if it does exist, we have no agreement on where or on what it entails, but nevertheless, by doing what? By being good people who live good lives. Okay, well, the first fatal flaw with that is that there's no consensus on what's good. Like, what does that even mean? Or what's bad, as we just heard in that example of the guy who blows himself up. In other words, from religion to religion, just like from nation to nation, just like from person to person, just like from culture to culture, there's not complete unanimity on that which is good and that which is bad. And so without this universal standard, guys, given to us by one who stands above and speaks with authority equally to everyone, how in the world could you ever possibly know if you're a good person who has lived a good life? Look, in some cultures, they love their enemies. In some cultures, and not too many decades ago, they ate their enemies. Which is it? And how much good do you have to do? Think about that one for a minute. It's a little despairing, I'm not going to lie. So like now, do you have to do, I mean, assuming you can agree on what good is, which you can't, but let's just play it out. If you could... 51% good, 60%, is that enough? How about 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, 98, 99, 99.9? I mean, what is it exactly? And, and, and how do you even know? And as I've said in the past, does adolescence count? Because that's going to be a bummer. <laughs> I mean, it just is. I was in college in a fraternity. Now what? Then I became a lawyer. So now I have to live like 9,000 years to do good works, to make up for all of this stuff. I mean, is that the way that it works? And how would you ever know if that's the way that it works? Who decides if that's the way that it works? Where is it? Where does it leave you? 
Well, it does not leave you singing, it is well with my soul. I will tell you that. It leaves you in despair. It leaves you hopeless. It makes you want to throw your hands up in the air and go, oh, good grief, I quit. I don't even know if this is good. I mean, I think it's good, and these people seem to think so, but this guy eats his enemies. So, you know, what do I do with that? How do I know he isn't right? Who do I appeal to? No ethics. No standard. No hope. All the world's religions, with the singular exception of Christianity, teach that you've got to make your way to the God or to the gods or to no God at all. Who's a he, a she, or an it, if he or she or it even exists? And to afterlife or no afterlife, wherever and whatever that may entail, if in fact it entails anything at all, by being a good person who lives a good life, even though there's no standard of good and there's no indication as to how much good you have to do. Christianity comes along and says, hey, guess what? We're different on this because of Jesus. So, A, there is a universal standard of good. And that universal standard of good is the Creator God Himself. When you see the Lord, guys, you see ultimate, perfect, pure, holy, good, personified. And here's what else you see. You see that it doesn't look like you. (laughs) And that creates a bit of a crisis because... We do answer to the God who made us to live for Him and to authentically be good. But Jesus comes to resolve the crisis. That's the whole point of the Gospel. He's coming and He's saying, hey, listen, I didn't leave you in your quandary. I came to clean up the mess. And it may sound kind of exclusivistic and all of that stuff, but stop hearing it with those ears and put your mind to it and think it through for a second because instead of bringing confusion, it's going to bring relief. And here's how the relief comes. I took upon myself flesh and blood to come into this world, not to teach you how to strive so that you can gain God, but to strive in your place for you since you were completely incapable to gain God for you and give Him to you as a free gift. Not to show you how to win the love of God, but to win it on your behalf and to freely grant it to you. Not to show you how to gain His favor, to climb some big mountain of righteousness, but to climb it for you, to gain His favor for you, to give it to you because there's no other way to get it. It's a free gift. You don't have to do anything. You have to trust what I've done. There it is. He lives the good as God life, guys. And then He takes the judgment of God that we deserve. And He sets us free when we do what? Like Him on Facebook, you know, follow Him on Twitter. I I think Jesus is cool and high five. And He's very likable and I admire Him. Nope. When we realize that He is who He is, which is the way and the truth, and the life, and that we need it. We need Him. And in that, we find a bread that satisfies, a light that authentically illumines. We find a door that separates us from judgment we deserve and grants us life that we don't, but that He gives to us, which is why we do things like sing and live for Him. We find a shepherd who authentically leads and guides and restores our soul. We find a vine that 
that gives us true and lasting joy and one who can take dead things and make them come to life. So with that in mind, one question and that's it. And the question is, do you merely like Jesus or are you all in? That's it. You know, and I think that those who are Christians here today are probably in various states of surrender. But what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that there's a difference between I like Jesus and I high-five Jesus and I'll speak well of Jesus. And I don't know, occasionally I make a little room for Jesus. And I'm all in on Jesus and I, I've humbled myself before Jesus. And daily I'm seeking by the power of God's Spirit and with the aid of God's people to surrender on a greater level today than I did yesterday and tomorrow than I will do today. And here's the deal. I'm going to mess this thing up. But he died for that. And so then with the same hopefulness that I had when I gave him my sin in the first place, I'll confess it, get up and with the aid of God's people and by the power of his spirit, march on toward holiness, toward following him, toward letting him with his light determine my paths and lead me wherever it is that he wants to go. I'm the sheep after all. He is the shepherd. So consider that as we come to the Lord's table in just a minute, okay? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have not left us um, in despair. Uh, you have not left us in confusion. You have not left us without life, without hope, without joy. But indeed, You have come to give us Yourself through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. In Him, we give up everything that we have. And in Him, we gain the one whose name is I am, as in I am everything that we were made for, are longing for and looking for. So give us the humility, we pray, to do that, that we might know that it is well with our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.